Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And back in May, I was honored to deliver an address at the centenary of the Italian Air Force. It was really an honor to participate in that event, celebrating the accomplishments of one of our top allies. The Italian Air Force is a world-class air force that bolsters free world deterrence in Europe and beyond. Collaboration of all NATO Air Forces today is an absolute requirement if we're going to prevail over aggression by our adversaries in the future. With that in mind, today I'm really pleased to welcome my good friend and the Italian Air Force Chief of Staff, General Luca Goretti. Now, during his career, General Goretti has accumulated more than 2,900 flying hours to include more than 2,000 in the tornado. Over the years, he's flown operationally in multiple NATO missions. And back in 2015, General Goretti served as the Italian defense attache here in Washington, D.C. And since October 2021, he served as the Italian Air Force Chief of Staff. So General, thanks very much for being here today. We certainly appreciate it. And what I'd like to do to kick this off is actually offer you some time to give us your thoughts, and then we'll move into some questions. Thanks, Dave. And first of all, uh, thanks to the Michelin Institute to give me the opportunity just to talk about the Italian Air Force, uh, an Air Force uh, when I'm proud to be the leader. Uh, an Air Force that uh, make a giant uh, adventure in, in, in the last uh, few years in order to be relevant uh, not only in Europe but in the international arena. And we are very, very proud to be committed on these uh, kind of topics. Well, thanks very much for that. As you know, um, that partnership has just grown stronger over the years. Um, so let's jump into some questions on some, uh, on some details. Now, you know, there's no question that uh, the U.S. Air Force and the Italian Air Force are, are very much closely aligned. Uh, we both operate the F-35 and the M MQ-9. And in fact, um, Italy hosts uh, an F-35 production line. And we also train together and engage each other in every day through uh, NATO. Could you walk through a bit of our relationship in terms of not just equipment, but also training and other alliance activities? Yes, when uh, I was selected to be a wing commander, I was called up by the air chief at that time, and he said to me, you will be a, a wing commander in the Mandel Air Base, and you have two tasks. The first task is to find a way to fly the UAVs uh, and, and draw a line, an, an airfield for the new equipment that we're going to buy, the F-35. That for me was a kind of a venture, and uh, since then I was involved in in both programs. And the first thing I I, th I said to myself, let's train together with all uh, with friends. Uh, so I was able to uh, put up some uh, uh, activities with uh, some United States Air Force guys, and uh, they helped, my, helped me out a lot to establish a very solid uh, capability on UAVs. And I did the same with the F-35. Uh, and the results uh, are evident. Uh, we've been deployed everywhere in the world using uh, our uh, equipments. Uh, of course, uh, we didn't go kinetic for political reasons, but we are uh, able to do it. We probably will do it if we are required to, if it is the case. 
And with the F-35, we were the leading nation in Europe uh, to build up this capacity. Uh, but without any uh, uh, help by the friends and allies from the United States, uh, this results wouldn't be accomplished. Well, thanks for that. A bit of a bit of a follow-up, if you may. Um, the Italian Air Force remains a leading partner in the F-35 program, and you were the first uh, in Europe to fly the Predator. Um, so what were the benefits and opportunities, uh, or what are the benefits and opportunities that the Italian Air Force has discovered in being both a fifth-generation aircraft and a remotely piloted aircraft equipped force? You know, uh just considering flying those kind of uh, aircraft uh, in Europe is uh, quite different than in the United States. For instance, you know, air traffic controllers very, very crowded and congested because of the limited of space. So one thing that we did for the UAVs, for instance, is the, what we call the Pope Bowl effect. You know, we, we set up a five miles uh, bowl around the UAVs, so we are able now to fly everywhere in our country without any problems. You only have to uh, make a request through the normal line of uh, uh, communications and everybody else is moving away from that uh, flight. But that helps us a lot to convince, uh, especially all the commercial airliners, uh, the people that are taking care of air traffic control, how to manage uh, those kind of unmanned flights that they are increasing increasing all the time and over the field and the same we did with the f-35 the f-35 uh, has to be considered not only an aircraft but it's going to be considered a, a, a not of data information so we used the, the that uh, aircraft to change completely the attitude the mindset of the people uh, it's not longer uh, an aircraft to fly but actually is uh, a data machine available in the air for everyone. Uh, and being the leading uh, uh, nation, we were able to test, test over the sea sometimes, over the unpopulated areas, and pass those information to all the other nations that were actually uh, incoming for the uh, F-35 users. You know, that's a, that's a great way to put it, as a data yeah. collection machine that can be yeah. used, by, used by all and provide yeah. that information. Now, um, it, as all of us are aware, our collective fighter forces need to keep pace with the threat. As a partner with the United Kingdom and Japan in the Global Combat Air Program, Italy is set to be a major player in the next generation fighter development. Could you talk a bit about your goals for uh, the Global Combat Air Program and what impact that you envision that aircraft to have on European security? You know, uh, bear in mind the, the, the activity we did with the F-35 and, uh, and just what I just said that was used to change the attitude of the overall Air Force we thought that uh, could it be a good idea just to start planning something very unique uh, since the beginning. Like we did it with the uh, with the F thirty five. So when uh, I was able to talk to my minister of defense, uh, to my premier uh, related to the GCAP program, I found a very positive attitude on my leadership, political leadership, and I have to thank them 
I really have to thank them because they actually they realized that there was a nice and great opportunity for Italy to expand their vision, their proficiency, even with the industries, with the program that can be a turnout point for the future. GCAP is not uh, is no more has to be considered as an aircraft, but it's a system of systems when everybody can play uh, and using uh, uh, the technology and the digital uh, information, artificial intelligence uh, or other means in order to be relevant for the fight of the, of the future. With this in mind, the program is not only a way to increase our knowledge on the technical point of view, but also how to increase the knowledge and the power of the people that will fly those kind of uh, systems. So we change completely also the, the career of the people that are coming in the academy, how we train them. Uh, uh, it's a very, very large activity in, related to the program. Using uh, the activities with the UK and Japan expand worldwide our intention to be relevant uh, in the international arena. Um, to a bit of a follow-up, um, how does this effort relate to some of the other fighter modernization efforts that we see going on around the world? You know, uh, sometimes it's difficult to say this. Uh, interoperability and uh, coordination can be a factor. We were used to uh, you know, do cross-servicing without any problem by signing papers and have a Spanish guy or a Dutch guy or an American guy jumping on board of the aircraft do servicing. Now, for uh, several reasons, we need to have technical agreements in order just to, to have the agreement and clearance to, to fly together. This is something that we have to consider. So every single system we have to invent or produce has to be interoperable uh, with other partners. So we cannot afford just to lose time when it's necessary just because we need to pay a paper to be signed. And that can influence also the relationship between new products that will be used in the future. Not only fighters, but we have to do the same thing for satellites. We have to do the same thing for uh, ARC2 command platforms or something like that uh, in order just to uh, reduce the risk of wasting time because sometimes I, I hope not, I hope never, we will not have time to think about it. No, that's great. I mean, we were talking a little bit um, uh, prior to uh, going on air, the importance of sharing information yeah. and the fact that we won't have time when called upon to use these systems in the future in combat. So uh, we need to take care of those issues uh, up front. Which kind of gets me, it's, an, it's a good segue, a lead into this next question, and that has to do with what is now being called combined joint all-domain command and control, um, which is an important addition uh, to that acronym because it emphasizes the need to integrate with allies and partners. So as your service seeks to develop advanced command and control capabilities, what kind of opportunities and barriers do you see for integrating with international partners, uh, particularly the United States? Uh, I don't see many, many problems. It's just a matter of a mutual trust. 
uh, and this is a, for me is a key factor. If we all are on the same side, uh, we all can prove uh, that we can sustain uh, activity together. I think it's uh, quite normal that you have to consider everybody uh, mutual trust friends. With this in mind, I see that um, there will be less problems in the future in relation to the sharing information. But on the other hand, uh, I have to also to consider that uh, the Ukrainian crisis put up this kind of issue in front of our tables all the time. So even though we are not considering mutual trust one of the key factors, we have to consider war, actual war, as a key factor to reduce and uh, this kind of uh, friction that we might get in order to share information. Information sharing is a tool, very, very important, not uh, in the future, but even today. We cannot afford just to uh, wait, you know, in order to, to see information. Uh, if we have to cooperate all together, we need to have the common view of what's going on, especially coming from uh, equipments that are capable to uh, bright the light inside the tunnel for everyone that is not capable to see inside the tunnel. Uh, and this is something that uh, has to be accomplished by the leaders, political leaders and military leaders of uh, all the allied communities. Uh, that's a great analogy, by the way. I like that because it, it gets people to understand what you're saying in terms of you know, turning on the lights so that right. other people can see what's going on, which is a great lead in to my next question, which is about um, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance or, right. you know, ISR. Um, obviously, the demands for that kind of uh, information and reconnaissance uh, are rising in every theater that we operate in. Uh, and all of our air forces are seeking to modernize our ISR capabilities. So. What are some of your thoughts on uh, how you'd like to see that modernization occur and what kinds of capabilities you're planning on fielding in the future? Uh, ISR, more than ever, uh, is a real player of, uh, of the modern fight, of the modern uh, organization in the air. We cannot afford not to have uh, ISR platform available every time. Sometimes are the first one have to uh, be played for every single operation. Uh, we are uh, committed on this uh, and in fact we decided in, uh, in the recent years to buy several platforms capable to accomplish the full spectrum of ISR uh, capacity. Uh, maybe more than, than other capacities or, or it's necessary to have uh, some tools in the air capable to fulfill your request. Uh, and so with, uh, again, with the United States, we establish a very close cooperation in order just to acquire platforms that are capable to be relevant. Uh, I might say fifth generation ISR platform in order just to be ready and available in case we do need. And the program is uh, going fluent. Uh, I'm uh, very, very happy about the, pro the processing of the equipment and the acquisition phase. 
and at the same time, so I'm using also uh, the cooperation, the great cooperation I have with the United States Air Force in order just to increase the knowledge and the proficiency of my of the people that I intend to utilize for flying those kind of aircraft. Yeah, it's a, it, it is an endeavor that is going to con continue to influence the way Air Forces operate, particularly as we move further and further into the uh, information age. Uh, and speaking of how Air Forces operate, in uh, August, um, Italy deployed four F-35s to Japan for the first time. Um, I don't know if our audience is aware of that, along with airborne early warning capability, tanker and rescue air, aircraft. Um, not only uh, does this demonstrate your growing relationship with the Japanese Air Self-Defense Force, or Koko Jedi, uh, but it also shows remarkable ability to project power. With, with that in mind, um, do you see an increasing role that the Italian Air Force might be playing in the Pacific? And uh, if so, could you talk about that a little bit? You know, uh, let's divide the, the answer into, into questions. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, for ourselves, ourselves we, we decided to prove that we were capable to sustain a power projection everywhere in the world. And because with the relationship between the Italian Air Force and the Japanese Air Force are very, very sound and profound, we decided just to go there. Uh, it was not only just to show the, the capability to project for the first time F European F-35 uh, so far distance in the Pacific, but also to see if I was able to sustain this kind of deployment without canceling any other activities that was already in place in Europe. That means that I was able to prove to me convince myself that my Air Force, especially the logistics system of adherence, is capable to move plates and people around without uh, leaving some priorities that my government had put up uh, with me. So I was able to keep the air policing in Lithuania, keep the air policing in uh, Poland, the uh, detachment in Kuwait at the same time when I was moving those kind of aircraft down in the, in the Pacific. And this is the first portion of the question. The second portion of the question is, you know, with this geopolitical situation like this today, we cannot afford just to be caught by surprise, just in case some days or one day, and I hope not. I do <laughs> say, I hope not. You know, we have to do something in the Inter-Pacific. I cannot afford just to receive an order to deploy somewhere and not be able to move around because of diplomatic clearances, for instance, because I cannot do stopover flights somewhere. So it's the built-in process uh, activities that we are doing. And the first um, part was to deploy in Japan in three days. Next year, we'll be deploying uh, almost 25 jets in uh, Australia for the pitch black alongside with the Navy guys that will be flying uh, on board of the carrier with the F-35Bs. And this is another milestone we achieve. You know, normally, you know, Air Force and Navy guys, they don't like to, 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 to talk each other. No? But actually, we are in a very good situation uh, with the CNO 
we decided to be on board together and fly the pitch black together. And on the second, uh, and that was the second objective. The third objective was at the end of the pitch black, prepare a, a non-stop flight from Europe to Indo-Pacific with using uh, F-35 and Eurofighters at the same time in order just to see if we are able to move quickly when it's necessary. So I, so I can check all the uh, issues, all the uh, you know, low uh, activities we have to do uh, or some criticism that we have or uh, you know, some other things that we need to uh, increase in order just to be ready. Uh, just in case, you know, you, you never know. With the situation that this happened today, and we cannot afford just to wake up one day and, and say to our leaders, "Sorry, uh, we are not ready." Uh, it's not. It's against the Air Force rules. Well, that's fantastic. Um, you obviously demonstrated a bit of that capability this year, and it sounds like next year it's going to expand even more. Um, uh, and uh, so. Uh, my compliments, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure next year will be just as much a success as this year. Um, now, the 2023 NATO Tiger Meet uh, is wrapping up tomorrow in Italy. Yeah. Um, kind of interesting timing. Could you walk us through what it means for you to host um, this exercise, as well as perhaps some of your preliminary takeaways? You know, and uh, we used uh, the Tiger Tail. Uh, meeting to prove that we were able to sustain logistically uh, a large amount of aircraft coming from everywhere in from Europe and, and having uh, almost 100 aircraft at the same time deploying the same base uh, it's not an easy task especially for the wing commander when he call when he got the telephone call to say you will be hosting the tiger meet but you know uh, again uh, we prove ourselves that we were able to sustain this kind of effort. We were able to plan some activities together with the similar aircraft, helicopters, uh, uh, fast jet, uh, tanker, uh, even a jammer. Now we were able to set up a scenario, a very complex scenario, even with the Navy and some special forces. Uh, in order just to see the ability and the possibility to cooperate among all the allies. Ten nations were there, uh, they were happy to, to perform, and they were happy also to see uh, how a large uh, training facility we can uh, offer to them in order just to better train their crews. Uh, of the records, uh, one of the tasks was to rescue a tiger, a simulated tiger. Actually, it was a you know a, a puppy tiger <laughs> that was uh, hidden inside a wood. So the UAV has to discover the tiger, send some special forces to rescue the tiger, uh, be uh, uh, inside some farmer's uh, land uh, <laughs> town. Uh, the Farmerland uh, house. Uh, we actually we asked the owners, uh, "Do you mind to play with us?" And they were happy just to play with us. We have fighters uh, play against uh, this kind of uh, trial, 
you know, we use some kind of things, things in order just to sure. prove that uh, we are capable to, to do something. Well, very good. We were, we were very happy. Um, the Italian uh, Air Force is a major and contributor to NATO's air policing mission. You mentioned that yeah. uh, a little bit earlier, um, especially in the Baltic region. Um, with Finland and soon Sweden's accession to NATO, what are your thoughts when it comes to integrating their air forces into this mission? Uh, I might say that uh, we are already well integrated among the, the Finns and the Swedish guys. Uh, you have to consider something. Uh, we normally fly during our training mission with the same techniques, with the same ADOs, with the same orders that we use in case of war. So there will be no differences to switch into training between training and war other than using live ordnance. So by this in, with this in mind, we all are already integrated in Europe. So the only thing they have to do is just to file files that has already been placed uh, for quite a long time. We didn't have any problem flying with them because the communication is similar, the language is similar, the taxes are similar, the aircraft can maybe be different but with the advantage sure. with the with the decision of the finish to get the F thirty five, even the aircraft will be similar, you know, and, and also the Swedish, uh, they are very, very eager to run and uh, close up the, the the gap between ourselves and NATO allies and them in order just to be relevant among all the allies. And that is another sign that if we are doing all properly together and the interoperability and the cooperation is very, very solid, there will be no doubt that in Europe all the allies can perform their duties properly. No, very good. Let's switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about uh, training and uh, career management. Um, here in the United States, we're exploring training concepts like multi-capable airmen so we can broaden the specialties um, of our force as well as capitalize on the fact that we're short on uh, personnel. Um, last year, you spoke about the importance of multi-domain training for future forces. Uh, could you go into some more detail on, uh, on this concept of yours? You know, uh, with the... Uh, coming to fly line the F-35, you know, the mindset into the multiple domain approach has to be uh, necessary. So we thought that, you know, we might buy aircraft, we might buy equipment uh, in a fast way. We cannot uh, buy people and train them in a short time. So we need to prepare them properly and accordingly in relation to the new equipment that we are buying. And the new equipment requires multi-domain mindset. So we decided to change in our academy systems, in our training system, all this kind of syllabus in order to fit in what is necessary in order just to uh, create a, a a guy that he was capable to sustain the needs of a multi-domain approach. And it was not easy because actually you have to get rid of the archaic 
training facilities or training tools and bring new ones. And the problem was to find the guy that was able to train them and say to the other guys that you, they are fired because you are influencing deeply the training methods. Uh, but actually, uh, I think it's necessary. And sometimes we have to do it, and we have to do it uh, rapidly because, you know, technology and the multi-domain operation is already ongoing. And space can play, again, even uh, a bigger role in the future. So we need to train those, those people and have those people ready uh, and hurry up. Otherwise, we are lagging and dragging, uh, and we cannot afford this. Um, well, thanks for that. Let's stick on the subject of training for a while, but switch over to, to flight training. Um, I understand that Italy's opened an international flight training school um, as part of the NATO Flight Training Europe initiative. Um, and it's noteworthy that industry is involved not only with aircraft maintenance, uh, but also as instructors. Uh, now, we're, we're all experiencing pilot capacity issues. Um, so do you think this model that you're embarking on is applicable to uh, other countries as well? I think so. Uh, actually, uh, we, 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 when we decided to create the International Flight Training School, uh, we had to decide which kind of uh, training methods and also at the setup was necessary in order to, first of all, accomplish our needs. And then, of course, because our very good relationship with the, our in, local industries, we said that you, uh, you have a, a, as an availability one aircraft system, the 346, that is very, very capable in relation to the need for the fighters of tomorrow. So why don't we sit down? together and see and find a way to increase the possibility to train more people uh, on top of the guy that is necessary inside the Italian Air Force. Uh, you have to be creative sometimes or innovative uh, and find a proper solution. And what we found out that uh, by uh, mixing pilots, civilians and military pilots, mixing civilian aircraft and uh, military aircraft on the same airfield, mixing the, the NCOs and the maintenance guys, we can actually not only double up the, the airfoil, but we can triple up the, the airfoil. Uh, and it worked, it worked perfectly. And when we decided to uh, set up the, the benchmark, we said, let's say that in 20, by 2026, uh, we want to reach our goal, this is 80 students per year. We will reach uh, the 80th uh, in 2024. So after only one year of uh, activities in, in Decimomano. Decimomano is an airfield uh, uh, in Sardinia and the area of training there is a unique area, uh, both over the land and over the sea. So they're uh, very, very large. Uh, so they can actually experience uh, very good training. At the same time, because the same training area is used by the operational fighters, they have the possibility also to talk to the real, let's say, real fighters to see what will be their job in the future. So the motivation that can 
come up by uh, this kind of talking is uh, more worthy than fly. So they have they actually they physically see the results of their training, and we are very very happy. Uh, it's an adventure, but I think that uh, other countries are uh, looking for the same kind of uh, typology of uh, training, uh, and I'm uh, sure that. Uh, you will see other training bases uh, with this kind of procedures uh, around the world available in a few years. Well, that's great, and congratulations on the progress, because uh, that's exactly what we need. Um, systems, ideas, capabilities, yeah. concepts we need, that... We need, pilots, yeah. we need pilots like hell. <laughs> oh, very good. Um, in the commercial space, too, but right. that's the airline's challenge. Um, now... One of the other concepts that you put forward is one that is kind of based on um, what I characterize as an air expeditionary force centered around the F-35B. Um, how do you plan on further developing this idea? And could you talk a little bit about how it relates um, to the Air Force's idea, U.S. Air Force's idea of uh, agile combat employment? Yes, as you know, we uh, we decided to have uh, two versions of the F-35, the F-35A and F-35Bs. Uh, and the decision was made uh, uh, wisely, in my opinion, because uh, we do have many, many short airfields around uh, uh, the world that uh, uh, you can imagine. So we decided, why don't take some base for short distance takeoff and landing in order just to be relevant everywhere in the world. The Afghanistan uh, scenario uh, gave us a, a thought on this, and so we decided just to 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 get some bees. Uh, and then it turned out to be a, a wise idea, because if you consider also what's happening in Ukraine, you know, the, the virtual dispersion can be maybe one day the only way to protect your high-value assets. So we need to be agile in order just to uh, take the aircraft away from your main bases, if, if this is the case, deploy somewhere, and uh, be ready to fight for the second day. With this in mind, uh, we decided just to uh, ask to our logistics people to find uh, standard standard uh, buildings and structures similar to built air in several airfields in our country and proposing the same thing also to other friend countries in order just to have the same and find the same building the same equipment, the same plug in the same spot in case you do have to run away from your main operating basis. Uh, we cannot afford to lose our time, but most of all, we cannot afford to lose our capacity only because we haven't planned accordingly in advance a place to, uh, you know, run and protect ourselves. And this is something that we are working also uh, inside the Air Command uh, meetings uh, among our uh, partners. Uh, I think that this is something that we all have to think about it. We cannot afford just to wait uh, an hypersonic missile destroying your base uh, 
and not knowing what to do the day after. So, but you know, you cannot build anything in one day. You need to pre-position everything. Think the worst case scenario. And if you don't think, if you don't plan accordingly in advance, you will be late and, and, and you will be dead and you will fail your mission. Uh, and, and personally, I will never accept. Personally. Well, very good. Thanks for that. Obviously, <laughs> preparation is a, is a key to success. And um, as we're seeing, um, surprise is not an anomaly. Um, it's something that can be expected. So having the kind of concept that you have set up um, uh, can certainly be a, uh, a capability or an element that uh, can offset any uh, impact of surprise. So yeah. thanks very much for that. I think what we'd like to do now is open it up for discussion uh, and questions from the audience. And all of those of you who are out there know the drill by now. Um, when I call on you, please unmute your mic and then uh, state your name and affiliation uh, before asking your question. Or you can submit questions using the Q&A function. And we have a couple of those and already. Be gent and be gentle. Yeah. No, don't, <laughs> please. Don't worry. That's why I'm the moderator. Here. There you go. I, I, I'll take care of that. Uh, but we do have some excellent questions already. Let me jump in. Here's one from uh, John Block. And it... it it has to do with the F-35. Uh, General, thanks very much uh, for being here. Having the F-35 increases interoperability between our countries. Um, how are we exercising this interoperability for aircraft logistics, for example, as that's a key element in running the F-35 enterprise? Uh, I mentioned already uh, the logistics can play a big uh, uh, role uh, in the future uh, scenarios and future wars. Uh, the F-35 can be seen as a unique uh, aircraft for uh, countries that normally employ this uh, aircraft. But in reality, each country has its own procedures in order to get spare parts, maintenance uh, activities, and so forth. So if we don't do anything to reduce the uh, the gap or something uh, to reduce the procedures that actually the time spent to co recover the procedures of the logistical or the maintenance will be failing. So we are working very very uh, hard with the GPO is actually the GPO is the Joint Program Office that exists here in DC uh, to uh, find a common procedures to share parts, uh, share logistics uh, tools and equipments, uh, we probably we are, uh, we, we might get in trouble. But no one yeah, among the F-35 users are willing to fail. So uh, the process are in, uh, the, the actually the situation is uh, very, very positive right now, I must say, uh, and I don't see very, very showstoppers on uh, combining and do something together with the, all the F-35 users. Oh, very good. Um, here's one that uh, is uh, sent forward by um, Tom Berkey. Um, it, it, it's one about uh, production. 
the U.S., largely through the leadership of Undersecretary of Defense LaPlante, has highlighted the need to expand defense production. He's promoted the need to include allies as part of this effort. Italy's a global leader in this realm. Could you please speak to how you're looking at this challenge? Uh, clearly, demands in Ukraine and beyond are highlighting the need for this. You know, uh, in relation to the production, I think it's necessary more than ever that the single countries have to come up with the common programs. We cannot afford to have a single program coming and ruled by a single country because they, you might face uh, problems in, uh, in, in the future. But there's another reason. Sometimes we cannot afford just that one single company can afford to product uh, a system, especially an air, uh, an air system, uh, by himself. It's so expensive, so large uh, investment uh, that it's very, very difficult to do it. Uh, on the other hand, if, for instance, a big company can take the lead of creating a, a, an air superiority aircraft and decide that some small components or specific components can be given to small companies or international companies, they are very, very capable. The of excellence of uh, quality products, you get two uh, benefits. You don't have to worry about uh, R&D, research and development or those kind of things because somebody else already done it. And then, so you can use your people to uh, make better research. And, uh, and then you have a product that is already interoperable among uh, other industries and other countries. So with this double effect, you gain uh, opportunity just to improve the cooperation among countries and among the services that we use this kind of uh, equipment. Oh, thank you for that. Um, here's one from uh, Charles Galbraith, uh, one of our space professionals. Um, has NATO and the Italian Air Force seen improvements in the ability to integrate space capabilities since the standup of the U.S. Space Force and U.S. Space Command. Um, and then his sort of follow-on question is, what additional improvements would you like to see in this area? You know, uh, be, being a, a pilot, you know, uh, I, I was used to fly in the regular air. But in the future, we will be playing very essentially in the space. So. Uh, with our knowledge, I think that the uh, Air Force uh, has the right to think ahead, has the right to uh, expand its area responsibility also into the space domain, especially on suborbital flights. Uh, and the integration uh, among us, all the space uh, forces related are mandatory. So the space capability has to be relevant on every single country or every single air force in order to to be able to detect and, uh, and work with all the data that are coming from space. Now all the uh, modern operations are managed by sharing data. 
the data most of the time are coming from space. So we have to think and consider that with those kind of uh, situation, we need to protect the tool that provide the space, the, the data. And the tool normally are maybe satellites, microsatellites. So I might use the United States Air Force uh, satellite system uh, and be able to provide the microsatellites just in case of someone take out the, the big one. With this in mind, uh, those are the fields, for instance, uh, for uh, interoperability among the space forces. Uh, and so uh, the other thing is we need to find, uh, I'm not saying a law, by the code of conduct of what's going on in, in the space. Because by increasing, increasing, increasing the number of satellites, you know, we'll end up just to hit each other's, you know, some days with some problems. Uh, and this is, uh, I think, the major challenge we have to face uh, in the future. Um, excellent. Let's turn to one of our uh, live questions. And uh, uh, we've got one um, from uh, Frank. Um, let me see what, yes, yeah, his name blocked out here. Frank Giugiani. Frank, go ahead. Can you hear us? Yes, can you hear me okay? Yeah, got you loud and clear. General Barretti, it's good to uh, see you, if not virtually, um, again, and, I, and, I, uh, and congratulations on your new position. Um, from a CJAD C2 perspective, what one initiative could the U.S. take action on that would speed its implementation in Europe? <laughs> you know, uh... United States can play a big role on JetC2 in, in Europe, but uh, I think that uh, it's not only a problem with United States, it's a problem of uh, information sharing among all the allies. Uh, and we are working on that uh, at the proper level, especially during our meetings, uh, air chief meetings, uh, normally we take in Ramstein or somewhere in Europe or in United States. Uh, Everyone has and possess informations. Uh, don't believe that only one country has everything. I can, uh, I can tell that the majority of the countries owns information that somebody else doesn't. By sharing this information and being interoperable, we can all, we, we can all have a better idea of what's going on around the world. And this is something that we are uh, playing today. Uh, and I can tell that uh, every one of us is, uh, you know, very, very committed to provide all the information is necessary in order to give to all the crews the proper information necessary to sustain their objective when they are in the air. OK, let's go back to uh, the. Um, Q&A chat room. Here's one from uh, uh, Gary Glojek. Um, General, thank you for highlighting the importance of intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, the incorporation of remotely potted aircraft, and the development of advanced fighters like the F-35. While all of these components expedite the closure of kill chains, how's the Italian Air Force working 
uh, internally as well as with its European partners to ensure sufficient magazine depth, guaranteeing the necessary munitions required to affect high-density target sets. Uh, you know, when the, when the Ukrainian crisis started, we all looked inside to see uh, what we are, what we have, what we can do, how can we survive, how can we operate. And uh, all of us actually took a look at uh, stockpiles, ammunition storage, uh, and we found out actually we all have the same equipments. We all had the same uh, needs. And that was something that was uh, unknown, even though it was clear. And uh, you can imagine that uh, in case of crisis like that, everyone tries to you know, fit in, in the stockpile all the ammunition that is necessary, just in case. But on the other hand, the requirements and the needs for the Ukrainian people to survive and to win the battle requires us to reconsider the necessity to take some spare parts or stockpile that are in our inventory and bring it to them. Because if they win, we will win. If they lose, we all lose. And you don't know, and we don't know exactly what will be the results after. So it's difficult sometimes to accept a reduction of ammunition, but I think right now it's necessary that uh, we can get rid of those. The problem is we all, we will all request the same equipment at the same time to the same industries. So who will be the decision makers? The company? the country that owns the company, the money, cash flow rather than bank account. That's the problem. Because we all be in line, you know, at the bank for the cash. And that would be the problem. Because there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot go to the market, have, you know, a a pocket and say, okay, I take one kilo of uh, orange fruit. You cannot afford to do this. It takes time and sometimes it takes years. But the problem is the situation is such, and you can see what's happening in, uh, in Israel. Uh, we cannot afford not to have what is necessary to, to fight or to fight among our allies. So the ex and this was a very good question. I just had the lunch with my ambassador here with some industries. Uh, and I told them, please increase the production of the weapons. Don't wait too much. Otherwise, we might be in trouble. Um, here's one for you from um, Aiden Poling. 
Uh, on this historic uh, Italian Air Force August deployment to Japan with F-35s, did your team experience any challenges or constraints unique to the F-35 and its associated uh, um, automated logistics information system, or ALICE, on the ability to accomplish your objectives that we could all learn from as a combined team going forward? No, actually, uh, we didn't have any problem during the deployment phase. The F-35 fleets uh, was uh, outstanding. We didn't have any problem on, uh, on uh, sustainability. Uh, only in one case, uh, there was a failure of uh, one aircraft for a minor, minor problem. It was solved, uh, solved uh, rapidly. Uh, the problem we had we was uh, uh, by not knowing, for instance, the procedures uh, when we did some stopover flights. We thought initially that everything was uh, already set up. And then we found out, for instance, that one contractor was not available, and we had another a subcontractor for fuel, and they didn't show up. So we didn't get any fuel for one day because of that, even though we paid the contract up front. And that's something that you have to keep in mind when you deploy, because you will never find a military airfield available to you. So when you deploy and you decided to land in a mixed airfield or in a civilian aircraft, be ready to, to go ahead and have a tank available to find fuel somewhere, because maybe you are in a critical situation. But that was the one of the big issues. And the other was, Credit cards. Credit cards. Uh, not many uh, countries accept the same credit cards that we used, or they use the same cellular phone lines that we used. So th those things might seem stupid things, but you know they can be relevant when you deploy large force of people. Uh, the, the aircraft normally is not a factor. You know, we all prepare how to manage aircraft, how to move aircraft around. But the logistics, the simple logistics, can put you in a halt when you deploy. And you have to find a solution, because otherwise you're stuck there with the all component. I, that's a great answer, because it indicates the value of doing these kinds of deployments and what you said is spot on too. Generally, it's not the technology that's an no. issue. It's the social science pieces right. or the interaction in facilitating movement that are. So, yeah, thanks for, uh, uh, thanks for that yeah, we, question. We, I, I, I had this. Uh, due to the typhoon, the real typhoon that was in the Philippines, we were stuck in uh, Singapore. A nice place to be stuck. Oh, that, no, it was <laughs> nice. But actually, there were... Um, asking us to leave because they already, already planned other people coming on the same parking slots. Sure. Right. So we were stuck there due to the meteorological condition and they were in a hurry to leave us, to, say, to send us away because they have other 
commercial yeah. flights coming through. Yeah. So that uh, and they pay more. They pay more. So right. if you are stuck in on the international airfield, they don't really care if you are a military or commercial. Right. They, as long as you pay. Right. Right. Okay, here's one from uh, John Mann. Um, a number of European nations now operate the MQ-9. Italy was one of the first. As a leading remotely potted aircraft operator, could you talk a bit about how you and your fellow um, remotely potted aircraft partners are collaborating uh, to empower one another or you know, operate cooperatively? The collaboration among us uh, are very, very uh, solid. Uh, we, when we decided to have the first UAV capacity was in 2004. Uh, we were the first one in Europe. And, and after six years, aside uh, the United States Air Force, we had the second uh, country having the UAVs. Now there are more than uh, one country using the unmanned vehicles. And we share. Uh, many, many activities together. Uh, we normally train ourselves uh, in uh, different countries. They are coming to us to, and they fly together. We are going to uh, France or in, uh, in, in England to fly with them. Uh, and also we used uh, the UAVs, uh, not only for uh, military operational activities, but even uh, for uh, specific uh, social tasks. That were, and this is not uh, useless. Uh, we found that uh, by uh, using those kind of tools for smugglers, uh, energy saving pollution, so whatsoever, you know, on the coastlines and everything, build up confidence on the pilots and the crews, how to manage and find the proper way of using the same cameras, or the same equipments for different uses. Because when you deploy, for instance, in Afghanistan, it may be useful just to monitor and check the water lines rather than check other people's moving. Because they can create some problems if they put something in the water that you normally use to clean yourself, to wash yourself and everything. So by using the UAVs and collecting data you know, on those things can be living safe life, safe life uh, useful. Well, very good. This has gone by uh, very quickly. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our, of our hour. And I would very much like to thank you again, General, for sharing your time with us uh, and wish you all the best in your endeavors as the chief of uh, one of the world's greatest air forces. Uh, and uh, so thanks very much again thank, for being here. Th thank you, Dave, and thank again to the Mitchell for this tremendous opportunity. And thanks also for the people that actually uh, stay with us. Outstanding. So to all of you out there um, from Mitchell Institute, um, have a great air and space power kind of day.